I'm Karen Stiller. Welcome to the Faith Today podcast. And I'm Bill Fladeris. Our guest today on the podcast is Carla Funk, the author of two memoirs. One's called Every Little Scrap and Wonder, and the other is called Mennonite Valley Girl. Karen, what should our readers expect from the conversation that you taped for this one? Well, I had so much fun speaking with Carla. I'm a Carla fan. I discovered her through the first memoir, Every Little Scrap and Wonder, and I appreciate it so much, the sheer Canadianness of this memoir of her childhood, the churchiness of it. She grew up in the church, and also just her very fine writing. Carla is a poet who became a memoirist. And so you can just imagine the lyrical descriptions and all all those things. So there's that. There's just the sheer pleasure of speaking with an extremely talented writer. But also, we want it to go really practical with this and actually do a podcast for people who might want to write their life stories. So that's really what we dig into. Well, there's a lot of people out there like that, whether they intentionally are ready to write their memoir or just have a vague maybe I should do this for my kids or grandkids kind of feeling in their brain. So it sounds like one that a lot of our listeners will appreciate. Yeah, exactly. And my head was in that space when I spoke with Carla because my own father, who would never say he was a writer-writer, like he was in the RCMP for years and then worked for the government, but he sat himself down with um, you know, a pile of legal pads and some pens <laughs> and hand-wrote out his life story, and it's called My Story by Russell Derling, and he has since passed it out to grandkids and cousins and nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters and so on, uh, just because he really wanted to leave that record of family and family history and family culture and life lessons. So when my dad did that, I it just reminded me, Bill, of you and I as editors, we talk to a lot of people who want to write and have a desire to create this you know, kind of historical record, you know, often it's very warm. And so Carla really gives some great tips. And I just think it'll be a practical listen for people. So Carla, you're a poet who shifted to memoir, and both your memoirs, Every Little Scrap and Wonder, and now Mennonite Valley Girl, are steeped in church memories and searching for God and coming of age, and all the things that many of us hold in common, actually. And so with this conversation, I wanted us to help people who may not be writers or they may not think of themselves as writers to consider how they might explore writing their own stories, their own memoir or their life story or whatever we want to call it. But before we get into that really practical element, when at times when I was reading Mennonite Valley Girl, I felt like I was reading my own story, except mine would have been called Dartmouth United Church Girl. It just reminded me of the power of memoir. And so I wanted to know if we could start with just you sharing why and how memoir works that way. Like it's such a connector. And why do you think that is? I love that it made you think of your own adolescence and girlhood and upbringing, because that to me is the gift of memoir. That's exactly what what it should do, what it has done for me, and why I think I've been drawn to it as a genre. Some people will say, oh, you're, you're just nosy about people's lives. And that is true. I'd like to say I'm curious about people's lives. Yes. But I'm curious because I really, at the foundation of my being, I believe that each person's life has a worth to it and a dignity and 
and something really fabulously unique that deserves to be paid attention to. You know that quote from, oh gosh, is it Socrates who said, the unexamined life is not worth living? I think it was Socrates. I agree, but I want to flip it. And I like to flip it when I think of memoir. It's the examined life that is more richly experienced or more richly lived. And so the draw for me to memoir has been the examination of life on an ordinary level and ordinary story level. I think every single life, every person I pass on the trail, every church pew person behind me or in front of me has a memoir life, has a gloriously ordinary life that is worth examining. So your question about why the pull to memoir, why memoir does that, it allows us to pay attention to another person's life and then in so doing to look back inside ourselves and see that, oh, our life does have purpose. It does have meaning and we're wired for that. So that's a long convoluted answer to say, I love how memoir leads us to look at the worth of other people's lives and then in turn examine our own. Yeah, that's a great answer. As you were speaking, I was thinking of people I've spoken to over the years. They say things like, oh, my life story is boring. I haven't done anything or something like that. And for me as a reader, I much prefer, I'm much more drawn to the memoir of the ordinary, if I can say that, than I am to read about like an astronaut or something, I, which is not to diss astronauts. <laughs> I'm sure they're wonderful. But um, that, that idea that our ordinary stories are so rich with meaning. And, and I thought of that several times as I read Mennonite Valley Girl, when you could have become a typing champion, but walked away. And, uh, you know, the, <laughs> yes, the characters in your town, you write about a, a, an older woman who I think she might have thrown a rock through a storefront window or something. And part of it is your skill, for sure, with words, like you are a great storyteller. But but the stories themselves are every day. Like I also was an excellent typist and, and I was taken back to my typing class. And, you know, I think I tipped out at 130 words a minute at one point and I was like, ah, oh, champion. And I just laughed when I read that section. So that old cliche of truth is stranger than fiction. I think truth is better than fiction. I heartily agree. I absolutely fundamentally agree. And I love imagination and how it can take us into these imagined worlds. And this is why we read novels and watch movies and do all those things. But there is nothing more satisfying to me than to sit with actual human beings and listen to them tell stories from their lives. I love it. I geek out over it. I've become that person that I used to be so embarrassed about when my mother would talk to strangers and start strike up conversations. And I would, as a, you know, 11, 12, 13 year old plus want to cringe and hide and just mom, how could you? Now I'm that person. And I see what she was doing and what she was interested in. She's interested in the person in front of her and the stories that they hold. I like to think of people moving through the world as libraries, living libraries of these beautiful compendiums and anthologies of memories and dreams and stories and strange things that have happened that they don't realize how awesome they are. 
<laughs> yeah. And it just takes a little bit of question asking or interest, genuine interest to hear somebody's life. They're just their library opens up and these stories come out. And I think, please write your memoir. But if you're not going to write it, tell me more stories so that I can be inside this this memoir right now as we have a conversation. That is so true. The other thing that happens, which I see happening in your work as you tell your stories, is that that distance of time and place and space and experience that life gives us. And then when we go back and we're writing and remembering your understanding too, like I, I see that in your work throughout your relationship with your mom, your compassion for your mother leaps off the page, I think now, whereas at the time you wouldn't have felt that way. So we understand our ourselves better, right? And and what we went through as we write about it. Why is writing so helpful for that? You said some key words right there, Karen, which is that time and, um, and place and distance, they all have this glorious way of yielding objectivity. And it's that experience of being away for me, being away from my hometown, moving away, going to university, and then you return for the first holiday and you suddenly see your family. Oh, this is the way it is. This is the way it's always been, but I forgot. And you, you just gain new perspective. You gain objectivity. And time has a beautiful way of doing that. To write it from that place years, decades later and look back, I, I think there's compassion that can grow inside decades and years and experience that you gain as a human being in the world going through similar circumstances or situations as perhaps your parents or your family members, loved ones did. And there is also writing has this way of moving the words that are brewing inside you onto a piece of paper. And when you, and you would know this, Karen, because you write, when you read them off the page, it's both your voice and someone else's voice. There is a, a distance between the written and the felt. And so it gives clarity to it. I joke, but I only half joke saying, I wonder how many thousands of dollars I've saved myself in therapy, <laughs> therapy bills because I chose to write out of my own life. And it's that gift of objectivity, the gift of clarity, and not knowing what you think until you articulate it in language, and then you go, oh, that's the way it was. It's so satisfying for me as a teacher of writing to have a writer maybe just riff on a prompt I've given, uh, maybe a little literary exercise or experiment, have that person write it, read it aloud, they haven't had time to think about it, and to hear them coming to the realization of the truth of that memory, for example. Oh, that what, that's what was going on when Uncle Bob said this to my mother and somebody threw the pie at the wall or whatever happened in that memory to see the clarity that comes and the illumination of it. It's so satisfying. So that happens in writing and it's a gift. It's a gift to read that when someone else has written it and it's a gift to experience it as you write it. 
Yeah. You have a scene, uh, and I meant to mark it down, and I don't have it marked down in front of me, but you'll remember it, where you're talking about, I think it's testimony time, where you have an opportunity to basically confess all the things you've done wrong publicly in church, and you make a decision like, I am never going to be the person to stand up behind that mic and, you know, to sort of tell the truth about myself. And of course, as I read both your memoirs, I thought, well, this is what you're doing right now. <laughs> like you are standing behind a microphone and you are saying very clearly all your stumbles and all your near misses and your mistakes and your regrets and your victories, all those things. So there is a vulnerability for sure. And I think a great courage in removing all the masks that we often wear with each other. And And I think that's a frightening thing for people when they're thinking about writing their life stories. So could you talk about that, the fear and courage piece? I grew up in a family culture where one of the dominant rhetorical questions that guided how you moved through your life was, what would people think? And there was this, this guardedness, like you would let certain parts of your life be exposed and other parts absolutely kept hidden. And I can think of how when we would drive to, it was my mom's side of the family, they were always, I, they struck me so, so more holy. They were more Mennonite. They were, they had Amish roots. So they had a little more Mennoniteness. And my mother would always clean out my dad's pickup ashtray. Not that anybody was going to be coming into the pickup, but lest they find out that he smoked cigarettes. And I'm sure they all knew, but this was something I can remember her cleaning out the cigarette ashtray. So there were certain things you didn't want exposed. I understand that. But the the part that holds us back is that what would people think? And there's just such a liberty. It's that that classic truth that that the truth does have has a has a way of setting us free. And so to punch through that that barrier of hiddenness or silence, there is a liberty that comes. And the liberty is often not just for the person speaking, it's for other people listening. And how many times have I sat and listened to somebody tell their story that has been maybe full of pain or trauma, and to bear witness to the freedom that they have found and the healing they found? It's beautiful. It's a gift. And so I think coming to that realization that I have consumed other people's stories and found great inspiration. What would it be like to be somebody telling the truth and maybe, maybe inviting other people to do the same? So I, I think part of the, the, the courage comes from borrowed courage from other writers and other people who have told stories. It's a leaning on people who have gone before me and told their stories. And the other part of it is prob probably something to do with my own nature, which is if someone tells me I shouldn't do it, I want to do it. That's I know that's bad, but that's just <laughs> the kid I was and that continues to be the person I am. And someone says, oh, you really shouldn't say that. It's like, really? I'm going to try it and see what happens. Um, so there is, yes, I acknowledge the fear that it, that's there and the courage it takes to articulate stories. But, oh, the gift of opening up someone else's story or inviting someone into your life in a more real way. That to me is, it's so worth it. It's so worth it. And for some people, it might just be 
not telling the whole story, the whole dark, painful story, but just telling a story, just telling one story, one story that maybe they've held on to and felt like people might think I'm this or that if I tell this story. Just start with one story and see what happens. In fact, that, that's what I often tell people who are kind of curious about what it would be like to start writing a memoir. Don't try to tell the whole thing. Just choose one memory that has stuck with you and you can't even figure out why it has stuck with you. It's maybe a weird memory. Tell that one. Write it down. Look at it. Read it aloud and see what it does to you. And then show it to somebody, one person that you trust and see what they say and ask them, what does this do to you? What does this make you think about? And then write another story. Just start with one. That is great advice. And I, I wondered what advice you gave to someone who was just thinking about it. So the, they should not start necessarily with, I was born on November 2nd in a hospital in Halifax. That to me is the stuff of autobiography, which is different in my mind. Memoir has a frame around it. It usually chooses a period of life or uh, perhaps even one big story. I, I am I am not an astronaut, Karen, so I cannot write the memoir <laughs> of the Mennonite girl who went to space. I can't write that one. Yet. <laughs> yet. Not yet. Yeah, that's true. All things are possible. But I can write my teenage years, I can write about a Mennonite girl who grew up in a valley, figuring out what it meant to be a female in a blue collar world ruled by dudes. I can write that memoir. And I don't need to tell every story within my teenage years, but I can lift to the surface the ones that stand out as emblematic of the experience of being a Mennonite girl in a valley. <laughs> I can write those stories. And so part of journeying into memoir is letting go of some of the some of the stories that maybe just aren't crucial to that particular frame. Uh, they don't need to stay inside that frame. So yeah, I would not start with I was born in this year to these people and my parents came from such and such a place and it was a dark and stormy night. I wouldn't start there. I may write all those things down, but then you begin to curate and choose from your life emblematic stories. And one of the ways that I'll choose the stories is I will think about, I always overwrite, so I'll write lots and lots and lots and lots, and then I, I sort of sift through and pull from them. But I try to find those stories that are bearing some essential truth about what it means to be a human being in that particular time and place. So there are stories I did not tell from my teenage years because they didn't feel tuned to the dominant themes that I was trying to explore. There are stories I didn't tell because they would be too painful if I told them. They would be too painful for family members, and so they didn't get pulled to the surface. So that is, to me, the primary difference with memoir and autobiography. An autobiography exhausts the catalog of stories, every detail, every fact, and a memoir curates memories that pull together a narrative with a frame, a chosen frame by, a, by the author, and works toward the illumination of essential truth inside that frame. And you mentioned 
that you overwrite, which makes sense to me because if you're writing to discover, you don't necessarily know which stories are going to birth these truths, right? You, you need to almost write them to discover, okay, I'm, oh, I'm writing about loneliness. And this is, I have something I want to say about that. And I'm learning that as I write. Absolutely. I have what I end up calling my junk drawer files. My husband and I have this ongoing argument. He didn't grow up with a junk drawer in his kitchen and I grew up with a junk drawer. I know. I don't (laughs) like, how did you survive? The junk drawer is where all the excess, I don't know quite what to do with this, birthday candles, extra balloons, chopsticks, napkins, a wrench, who knows? I have a junk drawer file for every book project I work on. And it's all the extra stuff that I don't quite know what to do with because it didn't fit in the book, but maybe we'll use it eventually. But that's a sign of how much overwriting. I just, I will write and write and write. And I'll think about maybe the year that I turned 16 and I'll write everything I can remember or every possible crush I ever had. And I'll write all of that down. And then from there, I pull. Remember how in those days when you would get a roll of film developed, it doesn't happen anymore unless you're a serious photographer, but you would drop off your film canister and then they would call you and tell you when it was ready to pick up. And in that roll of photos, there were duds, there were, you know, overexposed or blurry shots and they didn't go into the album. The ones that went into the album were the ones that were clear and they were worth putting behind that sticky, that piece of plastic, but the other ones stayed in the envelope and, but they're actually fun to look at every once in a while and think, oh, whose face is that? It's all blurred and it's, you know, mixed up in, in the film, but that's my junk drawer. And that's the overwriting that I think is necessary for us to do, to get those good shots, to get those moments of clarity and those images that burn with a kind of essential truth. Now, that's the, the phrase that I keep coming back to. That is a great and very helpful image uh, with the development of the film and the choosing of the photos. I really like that. So when you're teaching writing, and if, if someone's listening who they don't consider themselves a writer, but they want to start exploring their memoir, writing their life story, I hear that phrase a lot. I love the idea of starting with your most vivid you know, memory and writing that and sort of seeing how that feels. What next? Like, do they just keep following their memories or do they pick, like you said, you picked a year of your life and wrote about that. How, how to proceed? I often will give a literary prompt or I call them little experiments to writers. That's very specific and very small. And you can do this with any, you can really use any image as a catalyst, but one that I'll, I'll use often for childhood because people say, I don't remember that. It's too far back. It's hard to remember in the abstract in general, but get specific and suddenly the memories will start to come. So I'll say, what did you play with when you were a kid? What kind of toys? And I'll, I'll just get people to go back and think what kind of toys they played with. What was that one toy that stands out to you in your toy box? If you can go back and usually people say, I don't remember. And then you start to remember, do you remember getting any toys for your birthday that you really liked or a toy for Christmas? Or do you remember envying a toy that someone else got? Well, then the memories start to come because memories are always marked with strong emotional response. So let's say 
the easy bake oven that I never got, Karen. I never got an easy bake oven, but I envied the girls who had them. I didn't either, didn't Carla. <laughs> See, we would have been such good friends. I know. <laughs> I didn't get the Easy Bake Oven. I had great envy. And I remember being at a sawmill party, Christmas party for all the workers of the, my dad was a logger. So all the kids of the employees went to this party at the hockey rink. And there was some very shoddily dressed Santa Claus lumberjack who had giant garbage bags full of wrapped toys. And I remember thinking, oh, Easy Bake, Easy Bake, Easy Bake. Another girl got the Easy Bake. What did I get? I got the Easy Bake accessory kit, which was just a bunch of plastic utensils and some little cake mixes in packages. So I didn't get the oven, but I got the accessories. Oh, no. Story of my life. But I can go back into that hockey arena. It was cold. There was the Santa that looked like he most he just came off night shift and somebody threw a red furry <laughs> coat at him and he's lop carrying in these giant garbage bags full of toys and kids are just going crazy in this hockey arena i can go back there i couldn't have gone back there if someone just said tell me our memory from childhood but give me envy of a toy a particular toy and then i can start to build out the memory what else was going on in the world in my life at age six when I ached for this easy bake oven? Where would my dad have been that day? I was there with my mom. What was she wearing? What kind of music would have been playing over that hockey rink PA? Uh, probably some Juice Newton or some ABBA maybe. And what would I have been wearing? Oh, I had this coat, this blue and white winter coat, and it had the fur trim. And I felt very vain about the fur trim. It wasn't real fur, but I felt very vain about it whenever I pulled my hood up. All of those memories start to come in with their details and the world starts to be built. Who, what other kids were there? Did I, who did I like? Who did I envy? Who was I afraid of? What did it feel like to squeak my boots out over the snow back into the pickup? That pinch of the nostrils when the air is so cold and the exhaust, the smell of all those diesel exhausts of idling trucks waiting outside in the parking lot. I can go back there now. But what did I start with? Tell me about a toy from childhood. That is the kind of exercise that will help, I think, any person begin the process of going back to memories that feel as if they're inaccessible or they're forgotten. Start specific. A toy from childhood. A family meal. One Christmas. One family pet. Mm. Those sorts of things. Go back there and start specific and then let the world become like an illuminated manuscript and just start to fill in with color and detail. And do you have a way that you recommend uh, people work? Like, do you prefer a journal and a pen or is it better on a laptop? Like what tools do people need? I do like the tactility of pen on paper. There is something bodily about the process of writing that feels very true to me when the, the actual pencil lead or the ink of the pen is moving across the paper at a pace that is slower than the mind often. And when working in memory, I find that because memories can be a bit slow to emerge, there's something about just the actual pace of, at which one can write that feels tuned to memories starting to emerge. So I often say write with a tan like an actual tangible writing implement and a piece of paper to start letting the memories emerge and then transcribe it onto a computer 
because that transcription process of moving raw words and raw language, you begin your first revisions. You actually begin to see it you, in the truest sense of the word revision. You see it again, you revision it as those words move from ink on paper to words on a screen. And that process, that to me is that, that's the first movement from I have written something to I am a writer because you are transcribing it and you are seeing it and you're starting to work with text. Um, so I like to start with pen and paper when working in memory and move it, move it to the screen and let that clarity and objectivity emerge as the handwriting no, no longer is yours. It's now words that look like print on a page, one step closer to it becoming a written text. And there is something about that distance as well, or the time between writing it and then rewriting it or typing it out or whatever, even if it's just a few days, um, you will, I think, remember more, you see it more clearly, like, like you said, and I have to say, I've been a writer for a lot of years, and I've never thought about the word revision like that. So that's really helpful. That makes total sense. So yeah, seeing it in a new, fresh way. And then you can shape it up and make it a little better if you if you want to keep going with it in that way and probably trigger more memories, right? And do that start to do that curating work you mentioned. Absolutely. I find that as soon as I have finished, and I say finished, you know, in quotes, finished a, p- a particular piece of writing, as soon as I finish it, I remember something more. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, Karen, but you're maybe you're working on a project, you're working on a piece and you're like, okay, I'm at the end of it. I'm done. Put it away. And then maybe go for a walk. And as soon as I get out into the world walking, I go, oh, I remembered something else or I've had a thought that clarifies it. So you're right. That movement away from the initial process of writing to, to moving to the next phase, the next revisioning of it in between that space, there's room for the imagination to go, to keep working on the text some of my best writing, I say, is done away from the page. It's just the the composting, um, to throw in a different metaphor, it's the composting of all of these ingredients starting to work their way towards something alive and um, transformed. And it takes time. It, there, time and time just being a human in the world. Yes. Yeah. That uh, walking is hugely important to my writing life. But I can also think when I'm cooking supper and and I try to keep notebooks handy to write down ideas because I will forget them. And so that is important. Writing is not just the act of the pen on the paper. Another thing that I think could be reassuring to people who maybe don't view themselves as writers yet, but want to capture these, uh, capture their life story is this idea of writing in scenes or episodes, um, which can become, you know, chapters if you do put together a book project, even if it's just for family, that your life story does not have to be one big, long, flowing, you know, seamless document. It's okay to view them as maybe single essays that are then linked together and put in some kind of order that makes sense at the end. Absolutely. Do you, do you know anybody whose life is one seamless story? I, I don't. <laughs> no. And good so, good point. 
I actually find that the memoirs I'm attracted to as a reader are ones that reflect the reality of the lived experience of being human in the world, which is often structured in a way that maybe maybe there's a structural metaphor holding those stories together, but they are more episodic. They are more parts forming a whole versus a whole trying desperately to be a whole and yeah. so falsely stitching parts together. My first memoir of childhood, the, the motif that I kept coming back to was one of scraps and bits and remnants, because that's to me true of how memory works. It's remnants. It's like my mom's sewing room rag bag, where there would be bits of material she didn't quite know what to do with, but they were too big to throw away. So they stayed there for when a patch was needed or she was making a new patchwork quilt. And that image of the patchwork that is memory to me. That's how my mind works, at least, which is I've got all these pieces and now I want to stitch them, but I want to let each of them have its own integrity. And so working in small scenes, working in a single memory that you don't quite know how this is going to fit into a whole, that's all right. To me, that's beautiful. And it's honoring of that one moment and that one memory gosh, to be a human in the world and feel like your value only comes from being knit together with other people, that seems dishonest to me and untrue. And yet we find more value and we find a richer value when we are rubbing shoulders with the lives of people. So I think about, I think about individual moments and memories and scenes, each having their own worth. And then when they do come together, they're that much more realized um, confirmed and affirmed in their value and worth. And I feel like that would be really freeing to someone who just, when they thought about writing, you know, their life story or their memoir would be so overwhelmed. Like it can be an overwhelming prospect, but if you thought, no, I'm just going to write this, like you mentioned your favorite toy or the favorite toy you never had seen. And then all of a sudden you're, you've begun and you just keep following your nose and see what happens. I, I think that is so much less intimidating and could get people started. I hope so. I, I, that's true for me. I came to writing memoir by way of, of just a, a self-assignment. I wanted to write prose. I had written prose as a student studying creative writing at the University of Victoria, many years ago, and I had turned to poetry and didn't plan ever to make a, a, a life, a literary life in poetry. But that's the genre that just held my attention. And that's where I was. But I thought, can I still write prose? Can I still make it all the way to the right side of the page? I don't know. So I just decided that one summer I was going to write a personal essay. And I thought, what am I going to write about? My father was dying at the time, and I was going back to see him in my hometown. And so it began with just writing about my dad. And mm. it started with me returning to my hometown and writing about my dad. And I wrote one piece. I, I found a creative nonfiction contest. So I had my little assignment deadline. And I didn't really have any expectations. I just wanted to finish it and hand it in on time like a good gold star student those roots go deep. So I yeah. did it, left it, and ended up winning the contest. And I thought, oh, okay, that was encouragement enough to think maybe I could write more. And so I started off writing about 
my childhood and my hometown and just kept going with that. But it was literally in bits and pieces, little stories, small bits. And gradually I amassed enough to form a manuscript. But I didn't know that at the outset. And if ha- had I started with that thought, I have to write a manuscript, it would have been daunting. So one story, polished, told as best I could, and then the next one, and then the next one. And it grows. It has a way. If there's life in some piece of writing, it has a way of generating more life and more words. I think it was Alice Monroe who talks about, somewhere she talks about one good sentence giving way to the next good sentence. And to me, it's a little bit like that in a larger scale too with story. One good story has a way of giving way to the next good story. One memory, well told and well written, gives makes the way for the next one to be written and told. And the life, the connectedness of them, the way that they will come together, it will emerge in the process. And it reminds us all that writing is an act of faith. You go into that blank page with some small little mustard seed of faith going, "Ah, can I make something happen? Can something live here? And every sentence is one more act of faith, one more act of faith until you see in front of you something that might just be called a story and it might just work its way toward being a memoir. That's such good encouragement. And I was thinking when we were talking earlier about the sort of therapeutic value of writing, that you can also start writing this story by story by story without any intention of actually showing it to anyone else like you. And therefore, you can write about everything that happened to you, you, the good and the bad. And later, when you, and you can experience the freedom of that. And I think the healing that can potentially come from writing and then make your decisions later about how much are you going to share with your children? And, you know, are you going to actually let your aunt read this work and then curate it? But for the actual act of writing, you can, you can be free to just genuinely explore your stories and be completely honest on the page. There is liberty in that. And there is, of course, the horror of thinking, what if someone finds this? So this is the beauty of the delete button. (laughs) Good point. Um, Or or the fireplace, if that's where you need to throw your papers. But sometimes I will, in my writing classes, I'll say, okay, write down this line. I know I shouldn't say this, but. Hmm. And then just go. And nobody has to read aloud what they've written to the group. They just go with it. And you can, I can watch, I mean, these days I'm teaching on Zoom, so I can watch the faces of these writers shifting, slightly contorting, wincing, smiling with delight as they write these things they know they shouldn't say, the confessions. There is something about the page that's like a confessional. And you decide as the writer, is someone going to hear this confession or is this between me, the page, myself, God? How is this going to move? Is it going to move anywhere? But you don't have to. You don't have to. But oh, the freedom, the fear, the delight in writing all the words that are locked inside you, living inside you, just waiting to be put somewhere other than inside you. And oh, the page is a wonderful place to put them. 
Carla, thank you so, so much. I think that's great encouragement for anyone who wants to explore this. Thank you, Karen. It's always a pleasure to talk about writing, especially with someone who is a wonderful writer herself. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.